Open up your Bible over to Matthew chapter 17. We're going to study Matthew 17 in our last lesson here as we've been going through the life and the ministry of the prophet Elijah. And here the story takes an interesting turn because Elijah, who has already ascended up into heaven, riding in that whirlwind and the chariots of fire, uh, he returns to earth for a specific moment in time, a moment in the life of Jesus Christ. Life is full of mostly ordinary and routine days. But every so often a day comes along that is life-changing. A day that is seared in your memory like an image on film. You remember exactly where you were. Maybe you remember what you were wearing, what you ate that day. It could be that a certain song that comes on or a sound that you hear or a smell that you smell, that it takes you instantly back to that place again. I remember exactly where I was when I first met Natalie. It was during our what was called Wow Week of college. It was our orientation week for college. She had come from the Central Valley of California. I had come from Michigan back in the Midwest, and we were both there as freshmen at college. And I set eyes on her, and I knew she was the one. No, I didn't, I didn't know exactly that quickly, but it didn't take very long before I knew there was something special about her, and I wanted to get to know her better. We were actually with some friends out at the beach uh, in Ventura, and we were doing a number of activities with the school. And uh, a, f- a friend of a friend, somebody else that I just recently met, was sitting next to Natalie. And the three of us ended up going on a long walk along the beach and just got to know each other because we were from different parts of the country. And uh, that led to one thing and another. And uh, we were, I will admit, dating within a couple of weeks of the beginning of school. It did not take very long before we uh, were mutually interested in each other. But I remember that moment, and I'm sure there are certain moments in your life, the moment that you met uh, your spouse, the moment that you held your first child in your arms. Many of you remember exactly where you were when you heard the gospel, and all of a sudden it's like the scales dropped off from your eyes, and you came to understand what Christ had done for you for the first time as though you'd never heard the message before. There's certain memories and events that are just seared on our hearts and our minds, and they are life-changing. And the passage that we see this morning in Matthew chapter 17 was such an event in the life of Peter, James, and John. This was a life-changing event. It was a moment that they would never forget. And yet, interestingly, for a while, they were not allowed to tell anyone about it until the resurrection of Jesus. I'm going to go ahead and read the passage for us. Matthew 17, beginning in verse 1, and then I'd like to unpack it for you this morning. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will take three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise 
and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. After such a vision It is unmistakable to us that Jesus of Nazareth is truly the Messiah. Peter had confessed this just recently in the previous chapter, Matthew chapter 16. Jesus asked all of his disciples, who do men say that I am? And after they said, well, some say that you are John the Baptist, and some say that you are Elijah, and some another prophet, perhaps Jeremiah or someone else. Then he said, but who do you say that I am? And that's a valid question for Christ to ask each one of us today. Who do you say that Jesus is? For a moment, just forget about anybody else and what their opinion of Jesus is. What matters on the day of eternity is, who do you say that Jesus is? And you need to decide now who Christ is. And and I would contend from this passage that we have unmistakable proof that Jesus is none other than the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, the promised anointed one that God said he would send as a sacrifice for our sin, as a king who would rule over this world. Peter had confessed this in chapter 16, verse 16, where he said, Lord, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So they already knew that to be true, and Jesus blessed him for those words. But now they got to see it with their own eyes, the majesty of the king. One thing still didn't make sense to them. Malachi chapter 4 promised, as we looked at last week, that God would first send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, or before the coming of the Messiah. And yet, Elijah hadn't shown up yet. But Jesus connected the dots for them to understand that just as the angel had prophesied to Zechariah in the temple, that John the Baptist would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He was, as it were, Elijah who came back to earth to walk upon this planet, to continue his prophetic ministry, and to prepare the way of the Lord. And so it says, even in our passage here, then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Well, these earlier verses, especially verses 1 through 8, they give us a sneak peek at Christ's coming kingdom and what we can expect when Jesus Christ returns. And I want to share two points from our passage this morning. First of all, we're going to see the splendor of Christ, And then we're going to consider the servants of Christ, that is, Moses and Elijah that come to stand by Jesus' side. But let's look, first of all, at the splendor of Christ. It says in verse 2 that as Jesus went up the mountain, taking Peter, James, and John with him, over in Luke it says he went to pray. In verse 2 it says he was transfigured before them or transformed before them. The Greek word is metamorpheo. Of course, we got our English word metamorphosis 
from this. And there's a real sense of where it's as though Christ was metamorphosized in front of Peter, James, and John. It means a change in form, not just a superficial change, but something of deeper substance that took place in the life of Christ. It tells us two things in particular physically that overcame Christ. First of all, it says that his face shone like the sun. Think about the sun, and many of you can't see it right now because of the shade, but I guarantee you if that shade was not there, you would see and you would feel the blinding, scorching power of the sun. And the Bible says that as Jesus was on that mountain, it was as though his face was radiating and burning like the sun. And then it says that his chain, the, the, the clothes that he was wearing changed as well. His clothes became white as light itself. Over in Mark 9, another parallel passage says that his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. A fundamental transformation takes place in the life of Jesus right before his three inner circle disciples, Peter, James, and John. During the Renaissance, artists would often paint religious pictures. Religion and Christianity was one of their favorite subjects of art. And oftentimes when you see those pictures of religious images and of saints, and particularly Jesus, there would be a, a golden halo around Jesus' head. Whether Jesus was a little baby cuddled in the arms of Mary, or whether Jesus was a grown man performing a miracle or hanging upon the cross, often there would be this golden glow or emanation around Jesus, trying to symbolize his holiness. But if you were to see Jesus standing in a crowd, it's unlikely you would even be able to pick him out. Jesus normally didn't walk around with a halo around his head. His face normally didn't shine bright like the sun. This was a transformation that occurred. Unless Jesus was speaking or performing a miracle and everybody's attention was pointed toward him, you wouldn't know who he was as anyone different than anybody else. Isaiah 53 says that the Messiah would have no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Christ looked this way because he voluntarily emptied himself of his divine glory. Philippians 2 explains this. It says, Though he was in the form of God, Christ did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So Christ was in the form of God. That is, he was deity. He was God in, in full being, in essence, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. Jesus was the creator and sustainer of the universe. He was in the form of God, but he did not count equality with God to be something to clutch onto and hold onto. But he willingly divested himself of his royalty, of his majesty, of his splendor. He chose not to display his deity or exercise his divine rights. Jesus was like a king who set down his scepter, took off his royal robes, and put on the clothes of a peasant, and then left his palace and went to live with his people. 
so that he could rescue them from the greatest danger of all, which was sin. We sang of this earlier this morning in that second hymn, and I couldn't help but think of this passage as we think about the emptying of Christ, what is sometimes described as the kenosis of Christ. It comes from the Greek word kanao, to empty, to divest oneself. In the hymn, And Can It Be, listen to the second verse again. He left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. That's what Christ did for us as he set aside his royalty, his majesty, and his splendor. But here for a brief moment in Matthew chapter 17, we see the true nature of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the one place in the Gospels that we see Christ in all of his splendor. And this is much like what Jesus looks like today. Over in Revelation The Apostle John, who incidentally was one of the three disciples who was here seeing the transfiguration of Christ, later he would have a vision when he was all alone on the island of Patmos in exile because of his Christian faith. John would have a vision. He says he was caught up in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, a Sunday like this morning. And suddenly he found himself in the heavenly throne room. And as he saw Jesus Christ, it says that the eyes of Christ were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. This, my friends, is the Jesus of the Bible. He deserves our awe, our worship, and our praise. And he's coming again in glory and will judge the world. And my question for you would simply be, are you ready? Are you ready for the arrival of this King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus, the Son of Man, the glorious King of the universe is coming again. He appears there upon the mountain of transfiguration, but he is not alone. For two other people show up. Something else remarkable happens as we see secondly, not only the splendor of Christ, but the servants of Christ. Adding to the splendor of Christ, two men appear in glory at his side, Moses and and Elijah. Now Moses, of course, was the mediator of God's original covenant with his people. We call it the Old Covenant. It's found in the Old Testament. It was given by God to Moses at Sinai. Moses was the mediator. He was the middleman. He was the one that represented the people to God and represented God to the people. He received the law at Sinai. He wrote it down, and he came to even represent the law. To to speak of Moses was to speak of the law. I think of the story of the rich man and Lazarus. You remember the story where Lazarus was a poor fellow, and he died, and then there was a rich man that had never paid any attention to Lazarus, and then the rich man dies, and they both show up on the other side of this life, and the Laz- Lazarus has now entered into the joy of his master and he's reclining and relaxing and enjoying everlasting rest in the bosom of Abraham. And then we have the rich man who is suffering everlasting torment for his sins, begging to be allowed to have one tiny droplet of water to cool his tongue, asking, please let me go back and warn my brothers that they would not experience the same pain that I am. And Abraham responds to that rich man by saying, They won't listen to you. If they do not hear 
Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should even rise from the dead. You see in that passage how Moses really summarizes everything that takes place in Genesis through Deuteronomy. Those five books of the law are summarized simply in Moses. They have Moses. They have the prophets. There's nothing that you can provide that has already been given in the revelation of God's word. And just as a side note, friends, don't think that anybody's salvation is in your power. Nobody's going to be saved because of your ingenuity, because of your clever illustration, because of your evangelism outline. Nobody's going to be saved simply because you do all the right things and the formula is perfect to produce a Christian. No, salvation belongs to the Lord. And we can't cause somebody to be saved. You and I wish we know unbelievers and we just beg, Lord, please open their eyes. How can they be so blind? How, they can, how can they not see that there is a God, there's a creator and a judge, and we were made in his image, and he calls us to repentance. And you just think, oh, what, what is it I need to say? What do I need to do to convince them? Friend, there's nothing you can do to change the heart of a person who is dead in their trespasses. Your job is to pray for them and to plant the seed of the gospel and let God do his work. Because Abraham said, even if a man should rise from the dead, that's not gonna change a person's heart. So whatever it is that you think you're doing to get somebody saved, I don't think it competes with somebody coming back from the dead. Our arguments, our evidences, they pale in comparison to a person rising from the dead, and yet Abraham says even that is not sufficient. They have the scriptures. They have Moses and the prophets. They need the Spirit to help them have eyes to see and ears to hear. Moses summarizes the law, and so it is fitting that here upon the mountain that Jesus has Moses at his side representing all that the law had spoken of. But along with Moses is another, Elijah, our good friend Elijah that we've come to know well over the last several months. Elijah comes to represent the other large category of the scriptures known as the prophets. We have Moses and we have the prophets. Moses and Elijah. There had even been Jewish legends over the centuries that Moses and Elijah would both return and appear on earth. I don't know where that idea came from, but it's interesting that it turned out to be true. Some speculate they may be the two witnesses that appear in Revelation. There's some reason to believe that Moses and Elijah may appear yet again before the second coming of the Son of Man. But these two men lived parallel lives in many ways. And as we've studied over the last several months through the life of Elijah, we've seen several times how his life connects and traces back to Moses. They both embody the message of the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi. They both performed great miracles. They both acted as God's spokesmen. They both spent extended time in the wilderness. They both encountered the Lord on Mount Sinai. They, they were actually on the same area of soil. Seeing God, fellowshipping with God, worshiping God. They both had unusual departures from this earth. And now here Moses and Elijah are standing by Jesus, the greater prophet. Moses and Elijah had spoken the word of God. But now they stand by the one 
who is the Word of God, the living Word of God, the incarnate Word of God. Here we have the two greatest prophets of the Old Testament fixing their eyes and worshiping Christ, the ultimate prophet. Hebrews 1 tells us long ago, at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now, what are the prophets doing here? If you look with me down at verse 3, it says, Behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, and they were talking with him. Moses and Elijah were talking specifically with Christ. Luke chapter 9, again, a parallel passage, it elaborates of what they were talking about. It says that they spoke of his departure, which was about to be accomplished at Jerusalem. That's what Jesus and Moses and Elijah were discussing, the departure of Jesus in Jerusalem. In other words, they were talking about his death by crucifixion. Jesus had just recently announced this to the disciples. In chapter 16, it says that from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Down further, as Jesus talked about the cost of being a disciple of Jesus Christ and following after him. He said in verse 24 of chapter 16, if anyone would cut out, come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. See, he knew he was literally about to take up a cross. And he used that imagery to speak of the sacrifice that we make as we follow our Lord and Savior and do hard things for Christ in his strength. Again, Jesus will say in verse 12 of chapter 17, the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. So at this point in Christ's ministry, he is speaking openly about his death. The cross is now dead center, fixed in his sights. He's set his face toward Jerusalem and he sees the cross before him. He's announced it to his disciples and now in this moment of trauma as he considers and grapples with the weightiness of the cross and even drinking the dregs of the wrath of God for sin, God sends down Moses and Elijah to talk with him and I believe to comfort him. The son of glory is bracing to become a curse hanging on a tree. I think of this almost as another Gethsemane experience. Christ is considering his crucifixion. He trembles at the thought of being a curse and forsaken by God for sin. He goes up a mountain. He takes his three disciples, Peter and James, with him. The cross-reference tells us that these disciples are tired and they fall asleep while Jesus prays. There are so many similarities. In Gethsemane, God sends an angel afterward to minister to Jesus. Here, Moses and Elijah come. And Peter responds somewhat awkwardly in verse 4, Lord, it is good that we are here. He's literally rubbing the sleep out of his eyes, still groggy, now seeing Jesus in this transfigured form, and two other people show up. And Peter, you know Peter, he's got to have something to say, so he just seems to say the first thing off of the top of his head. It's good that we're here. Let's stay a while. Let's, let's camp here. 
Now, most likely he has in mind the Feast of the Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, which was about to take place in Jerusalem. He may be suggesting, hey, why make that long trip to Jerusalem? You're here, Moses is here, Elijah's here. Let us just set up camp and celebrate the Feast of Booths right here. But while the words are still in his mouth, mid-sentence, God the Father cuts him off, interrupts him with this statement. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Did Peter always listen to Christ? Unfortunately not. He often listened. Peter listened, raptured and and so attentive often to the words of Jesus, but there were times that he got sleepy. There were times that he got tired. There were times he got distracted. There were times that he even rebuked Christ. In the former chapter, when Jesus said that he was the Messiah, he affirmed that statement. He went on to say that the Son of Man was about to be delivered over to men and crucified. And do you remember what Peter said? Oh no, 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 Lord, that could never happen. That could never happen. Lord, I will stop that from happening. And here the Father is saying to Peter, this is my Son, He knows what he needs to do. Listen to him and let him accomplish the mission that I had given to him. God the Father confirms the identity of Jesus Christ as the Messiah and says that Jesus must be listened to as the greater prophet. Jesus is shining as bright as the sun. Two ancient prophets are appearing in glory. A voice is booming from heaven. How would you respond if you were in their shoes? Peter, James, and John were terrified, especially at the sound of the thunderous voice, and it says that they fell down on their faces. What a terrifying experience this must have been for them. But Jesus now turns his attention to those disciples, and he comforts them. It says in verse 7 that he came over and he touched them and said, rise, rise and have no fear. You see, this incident was intended not only to encourage Jesus at the coming of Moses and Elijah, but it was intended to comfort Peter, James, and John for all that they were about to go through. And it was a preview for you and I of the coming glory of the Son of Man, the one who one day will appear. It says in the previous chapter again, I think there's a lot of connections between Matthew 16 and Matthew 17. You can't read one without the other. In chapter 16, it says, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And the very next verse says, Six days later, Jesus took three disciples up to the mountain to pray, and he was transfigured before them. You see the connection between chapter 16, where Jesus says, some of you will not, di- will not die until you see the coming of the Son of Man in his kingdom. And in every instance of the Gospels, the very next story is Jesus showing his kingly glory to three of those disciples, Peter, James, and John. Two of the apostles would go on to write about this life-changing event. Listen to the words of Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves, we heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And then he says this for you and I. He says, and we have the prophetic word more sure. That is, whatever experiences that the apostles had, and they have a reliable eyewitness testimony for us to believe, whatever experiences and miracles that they performed and dreams and visions and prophecies that they were given, he says, we have something even more sure that we can cling to and fix our hearts and our faith on. The prophetic word of God. The word of God is more sure than any existential experience. How should we treat the word of God? Peter says we would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. We have this precious word of God, a lamp to our feet, a light for our path, and we are to pay attention to it. Peter immediately goes from the majesty and the splendor of Christ that he saw at the transfiguration to the reliability and the authority of Scripture in which we are to put our trust. John the Apostle also speaks of the transfiguration. In John chapter 1, verse 14, in his opening prelude to his glorious gospel, John 1 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory that belongs to the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Peter says, we were eyewitnesses on the holy mountain. John the Apostle says, we saw his glory with our own eyes, and he looked just like we expected the God of the universe to look like. But let me close with two applications for you of how we should respond to this story of the transfiguration. First of all, fear. And secondly, fear not. Okay? Fear and fear not. So, First of all, fear. As we think about an application to this passage, there is a kind of fear that you and I should have of God. And God revealed through his son, Jesus Christ. You should have an awe and a reverence and a respect that at times physically puts you down on your face before God. And if not physically, certainly every day in our hearts that we bow low before God and recognize how awesome He is. We have in this passage an image of Christ as He is today. And it's impossible to read it and not tremble at the thought of standing before a God like this. A God whose face radiates like the sun, that his eyes are burning like fire, his feet are burnished and glistening like bronze, that his voice is thunderous like the waterfalls. This is a God that you and I will see one day. And we should be afraid. We should have an awe and a wonder and a reverence and a gratitude that he died for us and is on our side if we've trusted in Christ. But Hebrews 10 reminds us, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This story is a sneak peek of the coming kingdom of Christ and that reality which Jesus mentioned in the previous chapter that the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels. And then He will repay each one 
according to his works. Friend, fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God and tremble at his presence. Worship him. Let this vision inspire your singing and fuel your prayer life and encourage you in difficult times. But may we have an awe and a worship and a reverence that would cause us to repent of our sins and believe in Christ and look to him every day and know that but for the grace of God, we would be objects of his wrath. The transfiguration should evoke a sense of awe and wonder in the hearts of every single person that walks this earth because this is our God. But secondly, we should not only fear, we should fear not. We should fear not. That is what Jesus says in verse seven. He comes to his disciples who are terrified and he says, rise and have no fear. He, he picks them back up off the ground and he says, don't be afraid. If you've trusted in Christ, you have no reason to fear. You don't need to fear the wrath of God. Romans 8 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You don't need to fear the anger of man. You don't need to fear the attacks of Satan. You don't need to fear the risks of the coronavirus. You don't need to fear the results of the November election. You don't need to fear what's happening in your body right now. You don't need to be afraid. Fear not, my friend, because there is nothing in all the world that can thwart the plans of King Jesus. This God whose face shines like the sun, by the way, the sun that he created, he's more powerful than the sun. He spoke it into existence. This God whose clothes became white as light, this God says he loves you and he's called you to be his child. And he's promised that all things will work out together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. The transfiguration should melt our fears and build our faith in a strong and a mighty God. So be afraid of God. Have a holy awe and reverence of him. But don't be afraid of anything in this world because those who are in Christ had the supreme, majestic God of the universe on their side. And he loves you more than you can possibly imagine. Put your problems in perspective. Christ is with us. And if he is with us, who can be against us? Thanks for listening to this week's broadcast of Feed My Sheep, a ministry of Crossview Bible Church in Yucca Valley. For more information, please visit www.crossviewyucca.org. We'd love to have you come and visit us this Sunday. We're located on Onaga Trail, just a half mile west of Yucca Valley High School. God bless and have a great week.